And so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited, too, to be here during our Promises series, where we kind of look to some of the promises of God. We get to hear these promises and start applying it to our lives. And today, the promise is a pretty significant promise, and the promise is that Jesus Christ will return, right? That's a good one. It's a good promise for us to remember that Jesus is going to return, right? And, and this is a big deal, because if Jesus doesn't return, it means we're going to stay in our current state, right? We live in this world where sin abounds, where there's pain, where there's toil, where there's death. And it's not until Jesus returns that we will actually see his kingdom as it was supposed to be, and we will live with him in paradise. And that's his promise, is that he's coming back. The promise is, is Jesus will return. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time to look at this promise today. And it's probably worth mentioning that he wouldn't have to return if he hadn't left in the first place, right? I mean, so that's where we're going to start. We're actually look back to the beginning of where he actually left and how he promises to come back. And we're going to look at some details of that this morning and hopefully be able to apply it to our lives. So let's start today in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. It says in Acts chapter 1, 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when they have said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right. What I love about this passage is it just starts by showing that Jesus, again, he left. And, and when he left, he left from a place called Bethany. So um, I've, I've taken a couple trips to Israel, and Bethany is just to the east of Jerusalem. So about two miles east of Jerusalem, there's what's called the Mount of Olives. And on the east side of the Mount of Olives is this area called Bethany. And in Bethany, Jesus, again, goes up into heaven, right, in, front, in plain sight in front of his disciples. And what I love about this is the disciples are sitting there staring up into heaven and watching them go. And, and I guarantee that if those angels, those two messengers, hadn't said, hey, start going and doing something, would have still been staying and standing and staring since uh, that time till today. They'd just be still staring up going, wow, that was awesome. Did you see that? But instead, Jesus sends these messengers, and he's like, hey, Go tell them I got something for you to do. Quit looking up into heaven. Quit staring off into space. Go tell the world about the message that I'm coming back. In fact, he reminds them in the same way that he left, they're going to return, right? Jesus is going to return in the same way that he left. And he wants these guys to know this. Now, the word uh, in scripture, when it talks about the coming of Christ, it's this very technical term that Bible scholars and Greek nerds love, right? And it's called the parousia, which comes from the Greek word, what do you guys think? Parousia, right? Yeah, really, really, uh, yeah. Big surprise, right? That's why they call it the parousia. And we see this word show up actually in the New Testament 22 times. And out of those 22 instances, 18 of them are actually applied to the second coming of Christ. Now, what's important about this is not so much the idea of the word, but the idea that he is coming, right? He's coming back. He's going to return. In fact, that's kind of the big thing that I want you to take away from this is Jesus has promised to return, and he always fulfills his promises. 
Now, I'm going to diverge for a second and tell you a little story. When I was in my 30s, um, I had my, my tonsils started to get inflamed, right? And I don't know if you guys have been there before, but I went in and realized that I needed to get these tonsils removed. So I went and I talked to a surgeon, and he ended up scheduling me for a tonsillectomy, right, where they take these tonsils out. Now, when you get your tonsils out as a kid, like this is what I've heard, right? They kind of cut them out. And you go eat some popsicles, and like two hours later, you're good, right? You go about your life, everything's fine, like no big deal. When you get this done in your 30s, it's like somebody took your organs and pulled them out through your neck, you know? I mean, that's what it feels like. I mean, the very act of breathing and swallowing is excruciating. You just lay there, and you think, I'm going to die at any moment. I can't breathe, I can't swallow, I can't do anything. And so I found myself just laying on the couch, you know? I'm just laying on the couch, just drooling on myself, you know, going, when am I going to heal up from this. And the only thing I could do was kind of turn on the television and just watch and just count the hours, right, go by. And of course, in the middle of the day when I turn on the television, the only thing that's on is infomercials, right? So I watched days and days of infomercials. Specifically, I watched an infomercial on the banjo fishing lure. Anybody ever seen the banjo fishing lure, right? I mean, I watched this, and I'm going, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And I'm laying there, and I'm staring at it, and, you know, fish after fish, these guys are catching. I mean, you know, they're throwing it out with hooks, and the fish are still holding on. They're flipping them in the boat. I mean, you can't help but catch fish with this banjo minnow, you know? And the guy's going, hey, listen, these fish are programmed to eat it. They can't help it. They are programmed. They are going to eat this minnow. And I thought... Man, this is so dumb. And so after three days of watching this, I only bought one box instead of five or six. Okay. And, and to their defense, it catches fish. I have caught fish on the banjo minnow, you know. But, you know, they promise you that this thing is going to save your fishing season. If you are a horrible fisherman, they say, this thing will save you. Okay. You will absolutely catch fish. Now, that might not be true, right? In fact, these infomercials make lots of promises. You know, um, nowadays the banjo minnow is not as popular. Now they have a new one that's called Mighty Bite, right? Mighty Bite. It, it actually um, kind of intrigues all five senses of the fish, you know, because fish are really worried about all five of these senses, right? But they are. And so Mighty Bite is guaranteed to save your fishing season now. I haven't bought that one yet, but I'm sure it does. And you're like, you know what, Brett, maybe, maybe you're not a, uh, a fisherman. Maybe you're a golfer. Well, don't you worry, right? If you're slicing it out into the woods, we got a fix for that too. We've got what's called the Medicus. That's right. The only hinged golf club. It kind of hinges right in the middle. This is guaranteed to save your slice. And if that doesn't work, right, you go ahead and you get yourself the figure eight band, and then you go get the hammer driver, and you'll be all set. It's going to save your game. But you might be like, you know what, listen, Brent, the reason I can't do this well is because I'm out of shape. I'm out of shape, right? Well, don't you worry, because we got a fix for that too. Right here, we got a shake weight, right? You can just hold that shake weight in no time. Your arms are going to be toned. It's going to save you. It's going to burn those calories for you. And, you know, there's all kinds of ones. You know, there's the total gym. There's the gazelle, right? You get on the gazelle and your hair will actually grow longer and start flowing, you know? You're going to look really good. You'll get the thigh master. You're going to have these thighs that are like steel or even the Bowflex. You guys all remember the Bowflex, right? You can just Bowflex your way to a perfect toned body. That's right. This is going to save your physique and your swim season, right? You're going to look great. But maybe that's not your problem. Maybe it's you got this dirty house, right? 
well, don't worry, we have a, pro- we have a solution for that too. We have OxyClean, right? You could literally like destroy a house. I mean, cover in dirt and mold and everything else. And you just go ahead and bring OxyClean in that room and boom, the place is going to be gleaming white. Whether it was white before it started or not, it'll be white afterwards. It's going to be so incredible. It's going to save you of embarrassment, right? Maybe, maybe you're overweight, you know, and you like to eat too much. Well, there's this great thing called the George Foreman Grill. You guys remember the George Foreman Grill? You can take like a deep fried cheeseburger with fries, put it on the George Foreman Grill, and all the fat disappears, right? It's a lean, mean, fat fat, uh, grilling machine. That's what it does. It saves you from all those extra calories. You know, or maybe it's your bad skin. Hey, we've got proactive. You are going to look like a, a movie star after you put this stuff on your face. Or maybe, you know, we have a solution for everything, right? Maybe you're cold, right? Maybe you're just cold. Well, go ahead and get yourself a Snuggie, right? The Snuggie, not only will you be warm, but you are going to look fashionable and beautiful afterwards. Okay, maybe that last one is a bit of a stretch. I mean, nobody's going to even follow you there. But the point of the matter is, why am I going into all these? The point of the matter is, the world has a solution. They want to save you. They tell you that they have the solution to save you. But the reality is, is there's only one Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. There's only one Savior. And that's what I want you to remember, is the one Savior is Jesus, and he is coming back. He's coming back for us. Now, he tells us that he's coming back and he gives us actually some great signs that he's going to return. And so today we're going to take some time in Matthew 24 and 25 to look at this promise and look at some of the details of his coming because he wants us to know about his return. And so if you read with me in Matthew 24, 3, it says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. From here, we're going to jump down to verse 23, where it says, If anyone says, You look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you this beforehand. So if they say to you, Look, he's in the wilderness. Don't go out. And if they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. You see, a lot of times people are going to claim that they have the solution um, and they, they are the Savior. But the reality is, is only Jesus is the Savior. But this tells us that his coming is going to be preceded by many false saviors who are going to come and lead people astray, right? There's going to be a lot of people who are going to claim um, that they are the Savior and try to lead people astray, Now, this could be in the form of politicians. This could be some kind of world leader. It could be CEOs. It could be some kind of religious uh, leader of sorts. It could just be a common person. But we'll see that before Jesus comes, people will begin to lead people astray and point them that they are the Savior instead of him. In fact, this has been going on for years. Um, I had a professor in seminary when I was at Moody Theological Seminary, and his name was Dr. Gene Mayhew, and he literally wrote a book which was called The Encyclopedia of Messianic Candidates. You see it right there. And Dr. Mayhew went through, and he literally cataloged all the messiahs who claimed would come. Right? And there was guys like Menachem Schneerson there. Um, in fact, when you go to Israel, you still see some posters of him up. He's, he's gone now, but they still think he's returning, even though he didn't return from the dead. And when you go ahead and look through this whole catalog of Messianic candidates, the one interesting thing is there's only one candidate who died and came back from the dead, and that's Jesus Christ. 
But the reality is many people are going to claim this. It says that many people are going to be these false Christs, these false prophets. And one common thing that these false prophets and false Christs are going to have is they are going to persecute the followers of Jesus. Right? Before he returns, there, there's going to be persecution for those who follow after Jesus. It says persecution is going to increase. In fact, we see this in Matthew 24, 9. It says, Then they will deliver you up for tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The scripture here tells us that the whole world will hate us because we are following Jesus, right? And this is because there's two kingdoms at war. There's the kingdom of God and really the kingdom of this world, which is led by Satan. And these two come together and they clash together. As a result of this, we see this intense persecution against the believers of Christ. Now, this time period, I think, is going to be marked by five things. And these are five markers that you will see before the return of Christ. And the first is the absence of love um, towards others. The absence of love towards others. It's like people's hearts will grow cold. And that general love that people would normally have is going to just go away. People aren't going to love people. Second, we're going to see a society which demands lawless living. Right? So the very laws that God has put in place will be replaced by lies. Imagine everything good that God has put forward to, to be a safeguard for us is going to be taken and thrown out the window, instead replaced by lies. Third, religious systems and governments uh, will become hostile to Jesus and his followers. We're actually going to see that the world will turn against it and says that the whole world is going to hate us because we believe in Jesus Christ. As a result of that, we will see the endurance, but also the persecution and the death of the saints, right? Saints are going to be martyrs. They're going to be put on display because of their belief in Jesus. But the good news is the fifth thing here, we will see the proclamation of the gospel to the whole world. In fact, the whole world is going to be hearing about the return of the king, right? And that's going to be one of our roles as followers of Jesus is regardless of the circumstances to share the fact that the king is going to return, and this shouldn't be a surprise to us that we see some of these markers even today. In fact, we're moving into what people would refer to as a post-Christian era. A post-Christian era is an era where up till this time, you know, Christian, Christianity has been an accepted norm and it's really set some of the standards for how we live. But in a post-Christian era, um, people are going to get rid of those things. They're going to take away the good from it. So they're going to say, well, I want things like love, but I don't want Jesus, Right? I, you know, I, I want freedom, but I don't want to follow the laws that God has put in place. As a result of that, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ is going to create conflict, right? Jesus is very exclusive, right? He's very exclusive. And, and you find this when you do kind of a, a, a look at a lot of world religions. You see, if you go up to people and you say, hey, there's a God out there. 
Well, a lot of people believe that there's a God, and they may call it a God or gods or some universal force. You might, you know, say, hey, there's love out there. And some people will say, yeah, you're right, there's love, and there's, there's things like goodness out there, there's things like design out there. And they may agree to all of these things. But the second you come in and you start talking about Jesus, we have a problem, Right? In fact, most religions in the world are okay if you are agnostic, atheistic, a naturalist, a pagan, if you're a secularist, um, if you're just religious, animistic, apostate. All these things are okay in most of the religions as long as you're not believing solely in Jesus. Right? You get that? Jesus is the problem. Jesus is the issue. Jesus, again, creates conflict. And there's reasons for this, because he's exclusive. If you went around and you told people, hey, you know, there's a lot of ways to eternal life, they'd probably be good with that. But when you say there's only one way to eternal life through Jesus, now we got a problem. See that? Because all the other ways go out of the way. Or you might say, you know, Jesus was a son of God, right? And they'd probably be fine with that. But when you say that Jesus was the one and only begotten son of God, and we need to listen to him, you see this exclusivity, it causes conflict. There becomes issues with it. And as a result of that, we will see that there will be persecution of the church and the followers of Jesus Christ because they are following after Jesus because he is the savior of the world. He is the only way. There's one way and it's through Jesus that we'll be saved. And we see that Jesus, when he comes back, right, nobody's going to question him. The first time he came in, right, he came in very humbly, right? He was kind of born into this um, poor family. But when he comes back the second time, nobody's going to question whether or not the king. And we'll see this in our next verses here. It says in verse 37, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And immediately after the tribulation in those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. <clears throat> and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And from the fig tree learn its lesson, because as soon as its branches become tender and put out sleeves, you know that summer is near." So also, when you see all these things, you will know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What this tells us is that Jesus' second coming will not be a private event, okay? Now, I, I live uh, near Wolverine Lake, and every year at Wolverine Lake on July 3rd, they have what's called Tiki Night. Anybody ever been to Tiki Night out there? We got a couple people. So tiki night, what they do is they surround the entire lake with tiki torches, and then kind of everybody brings their boats out. They crowd the shores. They push a, a giant barge out in the middle, and they have one of the most amazing fireworks displays ever. In fact, I love it. I got a picture here of actually tiki night. And so you'll see kind of all the tiki torches, and you see this incredible fireworks display. This year, I got to see it um, actually from my in-laws' uh, lawn because they live right on the lake, and it was awesome amazing experience. One of the realities is you don't even have to be on the lake to see this. I mean, you could be miles and miles and miles away and you will hear it and you will see it happening because it's such a spectacular event. 
Well, in like manner, this event, the coming of Christ, is going to be so much greater than that. In fact, it tells us it will be as visible as lightning in the sky, right? Last night at 529 um, a.m., I was woken up by, I guess that's this morning, right? Um, yeah, not last night, this morning. I was woken up by this huge thunder clap. I don't know if anybody else lives around here and was woken up by that thing, right? And I was like, you know, I woke up, I'm like, come Lord Jesus, come. You know, I mean, it's like when you're, when you're spending all your time in the return of Christ, you're like, yeah, he came, he came, you know? But no, I mean, it, it literally is, you know, you heard that and you felt it for miles and miles. And that's gonna pale in comparison for when Jesus comes back. It says like lightning's flashing in the sky, you're gonna see it everywhere. In fact, it tells is that the earth and the heavens will be rocked at his presence. Imagine that, that just the power of Christ in his return, it's almost like the entire world is going to be bending around him. The earth is going to be reeling, right? Literally, the stars and the heavens are going to be confused because of the power that he's bringing in his return. And it says when he comes, he's not coming alone, but he's coming in triumphal procession. He's coming in, and the host of the angels will come behind him along with the saints, proclaiming that he is coming, and they're going to blow these loud trumpets, right? And these trumpets in ancient times really signal one of two things. It was either A, the marker of a festival and a time of celebration, or B, it was a time of war. And look out, because war is coming. And likewise, when Jesus returns, that's exactly what's going to happen. If you are a follower of him, him and you hear that trumpet, know first and foremost that he is coming back to be king, and we get to celebrate. It's like the whole year of Jubilee for eternity forward right? But if you don't believe in him, that's going to be a sign of war. As a result of that, this time is going to be accompanied by mourning and death and judgment for those who have rejected him as their king. And you might be thinking, okay, Brent, this, this is all awesome, but when is this going to happen, right? I, I'd like to know the exact date, please. That would be helpful, you know? And I think we all would. And Jesus actually addresses this too. In verse 36, it says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as it was in the days of Noah, so will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left, and two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. See, interesting enough, Jesus tells us that Nobody knows when he's going to return. In fact, Jesus even says, I don't know when I'm returning. The only one who knows is the Father. Ultimately, the Father owns the timeline. And that might seem really strange to us, like, well, aren't these guys, like, talking all the time? Like, <laughs> don't they know? And I think what you do is you see the unity in the Godhead. You see the trust and kind of the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father is picking the appointed perfect time to send his Son in as the Savior of the entire world and the King of the universe, Right? At the same time, the son is trusting the father. He's got his faith in the father that his timing is perfect. And you see this awesome unity in, in here. As a result of that, only the father knows the time. But it tells us that many will still be unprepared at his return. People are going to be unprepared. They won't be ready for him when he does finally return. 
You know, it makes me think of a time where I actually, I was up in Canada, and I went um, fishing. I was just talking to Paul this morning, and he just spent some time fishing in Canada, probably in a very similar spot. And uh, my Uncle Gary, who there's a picture of uh, coming up here, me and him were out fishing, and this was probably 20 years ago. What's neat about this picture is actually uh, this was right before I was able to baptize my uncle just a month ago. After years and years of praying for him, he accepted Christ as his Savior, and he said, I want you to baptize me. And I might get a little teary because that's been a prayer answered for years and years for me. But what's so cool is me and him were fishing again, you know, and we were out there on this lake, and up there in Canada, the, the weather can just do whatever it wants to. And we're out, and the birds are chirping, you know what I mean? The butterflies are flitting about, you know, the moose are frolicking, right? It's just this perfect time. We're out fishing, catching fish. And literally, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this black cloud just flies in. I mean, we didn't even have time to even notice it. All of a sudden, it's there, and it starts hailing on us. I mean, in the middle of the lake, we're out in the lake. We didn't even have time to put away our fishing rods. We dropped our fishing rods, grabbed our seat cushions, and put them on our heads. And it just started pelting us with hail, like out of nowhere, you know? And after about three or four minutes, there was literally four or five inches of hail in the bottom of our boat, right? And we're looking at each other, and it finally stops, and the sun comes right back out. And we're looking around, and we kind of take our cushions down. We start laughing, you know? We're looking at each other like, what just happened? And as we go to talk a hailstone about the size of a golf ball flies down right in the middle of the boat. And we both looked at each other and then we put the cushions back on our head, you know? <laughs> that was it. We were like, okay, um, it may not be done. But we were completely unprepared. We were unprepared for that. And likewise, many people are going to be unprepared at his return. But the fact of the matter is Jesus will return and it tells us Jesus is going to return soon. Now, you might say, that's great, Brett, but how is he going to return? And what I love about this is Scripture gives us these details if we look into it. In fact, many people were aware of Jesus' return even before he came, right? We see there's this prophet called Zechariah, and over 2,500 years before Christ came, uh, or par- sorry, 2,500 years before today, Zechariah was talking about the return of Christ. We see this in Zechariah 14, where it says, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped, and half of the city shall go out into exile. But the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azil, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will reign as king over the earth, and on that day the Lord will be one and his name will be one." This is fascinating because just as Jesus said he was going to take off from the Mount of Olives, likewise, he returns. 
And in fact, when he comes back in his power, it's going to split the Mount of Olives in two, and it's literally going to create almost like a walkway, like a highway right in to claim his throne in Jerusalem. Again, the Mount of Olives is just to the east of Jerusalem. And many people saw this prophecy, and they knew that. In fact, the Jewish people knew it so much that they wanted a front row seat to it. And so I, I spent some time in Israel. In fact, I led a study tour there. I went there in seminary. And when I was there, and you go to the Mount of Olives, uh, so there's a picture of me hanging out by the Mount of Olives. What you actually see right on the face of the Mount of Olives facing Jerusalem is a pile of tombs. You see tombs of Jewish people. In fact, they estimate there's between 70,000 and 150,000 tombs because they saw this and they said, we want to be there for when the Messiah comes. Now, the sad part is many of the Jewish people missed it. They didn't see his first coming when he came. But for sure, they will see him at his second coming. There will be no question whether or not he is the Messiah or not because he's going to be coming with such power and splendor that nobody is going to doubt it. Now, interesting enough, the Muslim people also saw this. And in the 1500s, when they had kind of uh, taken over the area, they sealed off the doors um, which were going into Jerusalem on the east. Right? The east side of Jerusalem was close to the Mount of Olives. And you'll actually see right here, this is called the Eastern Gate or the Golden Gate. And they literally closed these things off and sealed them. And if you notice, right in front of it, there's actually more tombs. They put tombs right in front of the door because they said, well, the only way we're going to prevent them from coming in is by sealing the door and then putting tombs. So that way, if they walked through, if the Messiah walks through it, he's going to be unclean, right? So he obviously won't come that way, right? And that's what they did. This is a true story, right? So this happened in the 1500s. The point that I want to make is the Jewish people, the Christians, the Muslims, they all acknowledge that Jesus is returning, and he's coming back this way, but many missed the fact that he came in the first place. In fact, his first coming, he walked right through those very doors. As he made his way down in the triumphal entry, he walked right into Jerusalem, claiming to be the king of the Jews. He walked in, right? They put down uh, um, branches in front of him to proclaim his coming, and he was met instead of with celebration, with eventually persecution and whips and beatings and then crucifixion. And that's how the king was greeted at that point in time. Now, when he returns the second time, it won't be the same. Like I said, nobody is going to challenge his rule the second time around. And what I want you to do is I want to take a second and reflect on this together. I, wanna, I want you guys to apply this truth to our lives. So go ahead and close your eyes where you're at. And I want to go ahead and tell you a little bit more about these doors and why they're so important. First off, as you look at that eastern gate, the Golden Gate, you'll see that there's actually two arches. And inside of this gate, there's two doors. One door is called the Gate of Mercy, and the other is called the Gate of Repentance. That's what they're named. And Jesus walked right through the Gate of Mercy and the Gate of Repentance on his way into Jerusalem his first time. And I think it's so fitting because likewise, Jesus gives us those two uh, gates as well. He wants us to walk in to be with him as well. And it starts with our repentance. See, when we repent, when we acknowledge we have done wrong, he gives us that second gate, which is that gate of mercy. When we acknowledge that we are sinners and we need a great Savior, he pours down on us his forgiveness as well as his mercy. And to me, I think that's the big takeaway today as you guys are just sitting here thinking. First off, if you're in that place where you said, I have not accepted that gift, that free gift of repentance and God's mercy, right, through Jesus, 
then I would say today do that. Put your faith and your belief in Jesus and he is more than capable of saving you from all the sin and the evil that you've done. But if, you, if that's not you, right? And, I, and I'll say if that is you and you have any questions, please come talk to me or talk to Paul because you don't want to wait another day. Jesus is coming back soon. But maybe you're in the camp where you said, I've already done that. I've put my faith in Jesus Christ. That's awesome. But I think there's also that call to be witnesses of who he is. And so the second thing I want you to do is think, if you already have accepted this, who are the people in your life who have not? What people have not accepted this? What people have not seen the call to repentance and received God's forgiveness? And that's what I think you need to do is think about those people in your mind and as a result of that, just start praying for them and look for opportunities to share the greatest story ever with him. Now, the big question is, in the end, will you be ready to meet him when he returns? I think that's a question that all of us need to ask. Are you guys going to be excited about his return? Or will you hear the trumpet sign as a sign of war? Right? Will you cry out to him in praise? Or will you fall back in shame? When you see him returning, are you going to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Or instead, will you say to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and cover us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb? Because there's only one of two choices. You either have followed him or you haven't at that point in time. And really, my prayer for all of you guys is that you will have placed your faith. And when you see him coming back, you'll say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let me close this time in prayer now. God, we give you thanks. We thank you that you came, Lord, and you died the ultimate penalty. Uh, God, you were crucified on a cross for our sins, not for your sins. And you died because of your great love for us. And you offer us those doors, Lord. Through that door of repentance, Lord God, you also give us that door of mercy. And may we grab hold of that gate of mercy and forgiveness by saying, God, we have sinned and we need a great Savior. Forgive us of our sins. And Lord, if we've done that, Lord, I pray as well for people that they would hear about God's great mercy and they would share it with everybody they know because it's the greatest story. It's called the good news for a good reason that Jesus came to save us from our sins. So Lord, may we live in light of that. May we acknowledge that you are coming back soon. And God, may we live in light of that, that someday you're going to return and we need to be living in such a way that it could be at any point in time. We give you thanks again, Jesus, for the work you've done. We pray, God, that we would just be first and foremost devoted to you and your ways. And we thank you for your son in Jesus' name. Amen.